Shark Attack by Richard Shears. The New Zealander lay dying on one of the most remote islands on Earth. Could he be saved in time? Mike Fraser pulled his diving mask down over his face and let the icy waters of the Southern Ocean close over his wetsuit. Snorkeling was his favourite way of relaxing from his job as leader of a weather station on Campbell Island, one of the most isolated places on Earth. A speck of land between New Zealand and Antarctica, the island is normally lashed by westerly gales. But on April 24, 1992, the sea was brilliant blue and the wind a gentle breeze. As his four teammates snorkelled in the shallows, Fraser finned his way to 40 metres offshore. He relished the feeling of oneness with nature. Here, rare yellow-eyed penguins flourished and the sea lions were so unafraid that they would often swim alongside him. Fraser scanned the ocean bed to familiarise himself with the depth of the bay so that he might swim with the southern right whales when they came to breed in the winter. He was relaxed. Large sharks were unknown here, and while the temperature of the water could be as low as six degrees, his wetsuit was thick enough to keep out the cold. After half an hour, Fraser had seen enough. It was about 3.30pm, time to go back. He stopped kicking and let himself drift. Thud. A huge weight slammed into his right shoulder. Fraser was flung forward, gasping for breath. Must be a big bull sea lion, he thought. An instant later, he was hurled upwards and held waist-high above the water. Then Fraser looked down. Clamped round his right arm were the 80-centimetre-wide jaws of a huge shark. Instinctively, Fraser swung his left arm round and punched furiously at the creature's huge pointed snout. I must warn the others, he thought. Shark! he screamed. But his cry became a silent stream of bubbles as the monster dragged him under. Meteorologist Linda Danen, Fraser's second-in-command, was snorkelling 15 metres nearer the shore. With Conservation Officer Jacinda Amy, Electronic Technician Robin Humphrey and Mechanic Gus McAllister, she was watching the reflections of a rarely seen sun on the sandy bottom. All they could hear beneath the sea was the steady rush of their own breathing. Then came a faint, muffled cry. The swimmers surfaced and scanned the horizon. Nothing. Suddenly, there was an explosion of spray. Fraser erupted from the sea, yelling and fighting ferociously. The four froze at the sight of the creature that held him. The great white paused for a moment, its head out of the water. Then, chillingly, the shark opened and closed its mouth round Fraser, as if testing the consistency of his flesh. Think, Danan urged herself, there must be something you can do. She screamed to the others, Has anyone got a diving knife? But she knew they were powerless to help. The great white is the ocean's most fearsome predator. 600 kilos of muscle and gristle against which a diver's knife would be as useless as a toothpick. Judging by the monster's head, it was at least four metres long. Danan watched helplessly as the shark pulled Fraser beneath the waves. As he went under, Fraser realised that death was only seconds away. If you don't free yourself now, you're gone. He raised his knees, then gave a powerful kick to the pale underside of the monster's mouth. He kicked again and again, tugging desperately at his trapped arm. The shark shook him, its teeth meshing like shears as they ground deep into his flesh. 
Fraser kicked again. Suddenly, he felt a hard wrench and he rolled clear. Instantly, Fraser rocketed upwards. As his head broke the water's surface, he sucked in air and kicked frantically for the shore. But as he ploughed through the water, his body reacted strangely. He looked down at his right arm. It's gone. There was nothing below the elbow except a shredded stump that pumped spurts of bright red arterial blood into the ocean. Fraser knew that his only hope lay in getting to his teammates before he bled to death. He had told them before, out here we have to look out for each other, there's nobody else. Now that would be put to the test. Fraser's instincts urged him to swim to shore as fast as he could. But years of living in remote places had taught him not to panic. He knew that every beat of his heart pumped more blood into the sea. So to avoid panic, he forced himself to give measured kicks. Then, suddenly, Fraser felt a tug on his neck. He turned and looked into a diving mask. Jacinda, why didn't she go into shore, he thought, as she slipped her body under his and began to pull him to the shore. Waiting there, the other teammates lifted the wounded man out of the water. Immediately, Danan caught sight of Fraser's arm. Shreds of muscle and skin protruded from the mangled stump. Before going to Campbell Island, she had been trained to apply splints on broken limbs, give injections and do stitches. But nothing prepared me for this, she thought grimly. They were 680 kilometres from the nearest hospital. There was no airstrip on the island, and a boat would take at least three days to reach them. God help us, she prayed. We're all he's got. By this time, shock had set in and Fraser was having difficulty breathing. Maybe I'm going to die, he thought as he gasped for air. Danan quickly unzipped his wetsuit and removed his face mask. Gradually, Fraser breathed easier. Then, while Humphrey applied pressure on the stump, McAllister ripped off the rubber strap from Fraser's mask and ran it round his upper arm, pulling it tight. The bleeding stopped. The team's base, with its powerful radio transmitter and medical supplies, was a tough six-kilometre hike away. I'll go, said McAllister, and set off at a run into the scrub. Amy knew that if Fraser lost consciousness, his chances would be even worse. Let's keep him talking, she told Humphrey, while Danan ran 300 metres up the hill to a small hut with a first aid kit, a tent and a VHF radio. Perhaps a ship or plane was within range. Mayday! Mayday! she called. We have a badly injured man on Campbell Island. But her calls brought only a hiss of static. Carrying the radio and the first aid bag, Danan stumbled back down the hill. Gingerly, she replaced the tourniquet with a pressure bandage, then turned to his left arm, which was badly gashed and appeared to be broken. She tied Fraser's yellow plastic snorkel tube to his forearm as a splint. We must get him out of the cold, Danan told the others. With a sleeping bag from the hut, an old oar and a piece of driftwood, Humphrey built a crude stretcher. The group carried Fraser to level ground and set up an emergency tent over him. Fraser was showing symptoms of severe shock. Chalk white face, blue lips. His skin was cold and clammy. Treatment is warmth, elevation of the legs to keep blood near the vital organs, a saline drip to raise blood volume and drugs to raise blood pressure. Danan and the others cut off his wetsuit, hauled him into a sleeping bag and piled two more bags on top. Elevation and warmth are all we can give you, Danan thought. Just after five in the evening, the radio crackled to life. McAllister had reached the base. 
I called Wellington. They're doing all they can to get help to us. How's Mike? He's still cold, Gus, Amy said quietly. He's very cold. In his office at Torpo Airport in the North Island, helicopter pilot John Funnell slowly lowered his phone back to its cradle, his mind racing. He had seen Mike Fraser just six months before on a supply mission to Campbell Island. It's a long way, he thought, but we have to try. Funnel had a reputation for pulling off difficult rescues, but this one would be a real challenge. His six-seater aerospatial squirrel helicopter had a range of 650 kilometres. To reach Fraser, the cabin would need to be fitted with long-range fuel tanks. First, Funnel had to fly the craft 1,060 kilometres to the extreme south and then another 685 kilometres over the ocean. The time it took to fly that far could cost Fraser his life. But an audacious plan began to form in Funnel's mind. He needed two key people. One was Pat Wynn, a veteran paramedic who had flown with him on scores of rescue missions. The other man was Grant Beale, an experienced long-distance pilot and navigator, someone who could help guide the helicopter to a speck of rock in the vastness of the Southern Ocean and do it in the dark. Funnel called the two men. We've got a shark attack victim. Meanwhile, a team of aircraft engineers hurriedly fitted three jet fuel drums to the cabin interior and a long-range navigation system to the instrument panel. When Wynne and Beale arrived, Funnel outlined his plan. Beale would be in the cockpit. Wynne would sit in the passenger compartment with the three drums of aviation fuel and a portable electric pump to transfer fuel to the helicopter's main tank as they flew. It was an unconventional strategy, but the men knew Fraser's life hung on the outcome. In the gloom of the tent, Fraser felt desperately cold. Waves of agony washed over him. At least I'm still alive, he thought. I've lost my right arm, but I can still make it. I've got a good team around me, and I can rely on them. They won't give up. Nor will I. It was after 6.30pm when McAllister returned to the tent, carrying a heavy package of drugs, bandages and sleeping bags from the base. Danan picked out the painkiller pethidine and an antibiotic Velocef. She filled two syringes and injected Fraser in the thigh. His breathing was so shallow now that it was almost imperceptible. She moved round to cradle his head in her hands, hoping that the contact would somehow give him the strength to cling to life. At 2am, after a five-hour flight from Torpo, the squirrel soared over the southern tip of the South Island and out into the darkness. The three men were grimly silent. Ahead of them lay those 685 kilometres of open sea. All that stood between them and an icy death was their small craft and Grant Beale's skill as a navigator. To find the island at night, Beale had planned to rely on the squirrel's global positioning system, or GPS, a computerised radio receiver that uses information from orbiting satellites to calculate position, speed, altitude and distance to destination. But that night, the GPS satellites were taken off the air for routine repositioning in space. By a cruel twist of fate, the procedure had coincided with their flight. Transmission was due to resume after 90 minutes when they were halfway to Campbell. Until then, Beale had to navigate by dead reckoning, using estimates of wind velocity and speed. If the GPS link was not restored on time, they might have to abandon the rescue attempt and fly back to land. Jammed into a tiny corner of the squirrel's passenger compartment, 
Wynne was fighting cramps. With no room to sit or stand, he was forced to bend over the pilot. Ready to jettison, he told Funnel as the first drum ran dry. Wynne moved the fuel line to the second drum. Then, as Funnel slowed the squirrel, Wynne opened the door and heaved the drum. By now, they had been flying for more than one and a half hours from Invercargill, and the GPS receiver still remained obstinately blank. Using information that was radioed from a Navajo aircraft 14,000 feet above them, Beale calculated a new compass heading. The navigator knew that even a slight variation could push them way off course. Funnel, who had been working for 21 hours straight, adjusted his controls as they flew on into the night. Throughout the night, Danan was giving Fraser sips of water to battle dehydration, but as his condition got worse, whatever he sipped he brought back up again. His body was drenched with sweat. Amy removed a sleeping bag and Danan prepared another syringe of pethidine. Soon after 5am, Fraser drifted into sleep. Danan checked his vital signs and nudged him every now and then to make sure he was still conscious. Grant Beale glanced at the instrument panel and saw, at last, black numbers flashing on the small GPS screen. His navigation had been nearly perfect. We're one and a quarter miles off track, he said. But as the squirrel neared the island, a new peril emerged. A thickening layer of low clouds was cloaking the sea. Funnel had learnt that the Tangaroa, a government fisheries research ship, had already headed for Campbell Island after picking up one of the team's radio conversations. He switched to a marine channel and radioed the ship. This is Tangaroa, came the reply. There's cloud cover down to 1,000 feet. We'll put up flares to guide you in. There they are, Beale said, as he spotted a faint glow of orange in the clouds to their left. At just above 1,000 feet, Funnel was still flying blind. Suddenly, the cloud billowed away, and turning again, they could see the lights of the ship like a cluster of pearls on the sea. Using the Tangaroa as a marker, Funnel brought the squirrel down to 300 feet. Steer left, said the ship's radio operator, guiding them round two rocky offshore islands. Funnel flew inshore at 40 knots. A minute later, Beale saw a light on the ground. Got them, he said. Just after 6am, 15 hours after the shark attack, Wynne crawled into the tent. He found Danan and Amy kneeling beside Fraser. The wounded man's face was bluish white and his eyes looked closed. I'm too late, Wynne thought. Pressing his fingers against the carotid artery in Fraser's neck, he could detect only a faint pulse. Wynne wrapped a blood pressure pad around Fraser's arm. The reading was 70 over 40 so low that he was at the point of kidney failure. The first priority was an immediate transfusion, but in the dim light of the tent, it was virtually impossible to insert a needle into Fraser's collapsed veins. We'll have to fly him to the base, Wynne told the women. Working there under bright lights, Wynne searched for the main vein in Fraser's right ankle. With a silent prayer, Wynne pushed a hypodermic syringe through the skin. Thank God! A thin fountain of dark, venous blood erupted into the syringe. With Amy holding a bag of plasma, Wynne removed the syringe from the needle and replaced it with the drip line. He repeated the procedure on the left ankle. Life-giving fluids began seeping into Fraser. Six hours later, Fraser was wheeled into Southland Hospital in Invercargill. He quickly regained his strength, although doctors estimated that he had lost up to half the blood in his body. 
In their 19-and-a-half-hour journey, Funnel, Beale and Wynne had flown nearly 3,700 kilometres, much of the distance over ocean in a helicopter designed for short-haul work over land, a feat hailed as one of the most courageous rescues in New Zealand history. Pat Wynne sees it differently. We were just doing our job, he says. After skin grafts and reconstructive surgery, Fraser now works for the Weather Service in Wellington. With exercise, his left arm, which lost two tendons, continues to get stronger. The ordeal has left him with a tremendous respect for human courage and resourcefulness. It just shows the extraordinary things we can achieve when we look out for each other. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia.